Hello and welcome to the OTP, the one true podcast for fanfiction readers, writers, and lovers. I am once again your host and mod, Enthusiasm Girl. So we are back. We took a long break there while I had to deal with some real life things I had going on, but we are finally, finally back with new episodes. Uh, Consider those first 15 to 16 episodes, depending upon how you count the Marvel ones, to be our first season, I guess. So this would be season two. I apologize for the delay, but you just need to know that we're back now and we're better than ever moving forward. I'm really excited about all the episodes we have planned. This episode is our first episode that is specifically focused on a particular kind of alternate universe fic, which is something that I've been wanting to do for a little while, and no, it is not the long-promised ABO episode, but that's coming. In this episode, we talk about fusion AUs. Uh, Those are the AUs that are not quite a crossover, but not quite not a crossover either. Uh, I'm joined by contributor Joan, who you last heard talking with me about Homestuck, and Chris, who you may remember from our episode on Tony Stark. Uh, It's a very fun conversation. We talk about a wide variety of different fandoms and consider which ones lend themselves to fusions and which don't and why. So I hope you enjoy it, and please stay tuned at the end for an important bit of podcast news. So I have Joan here and I have Chris here today, and we are going to talk about Fusion AUs, which is exciting. This will be the first show that we've actually done that is about a specific kind of AU. I've been promising an ABO episode for a while, but we got to Fusion AUs first. Um, And that's because there's a lot to talk about with Fusion AUs. Um, I was going to also talk about crossovers, but once I realized how big a topic just fusions were, it seemed like, let's just talk about that. And so, Chris and Joan, you guys are fans of fusions of all kinds, I assume? Oh, yes. I, um, you know, I just love the idea of crossovers in general. So this, this kind of fusion, taking aspects from one, from one fandom and putting them in another fandom together is always really interesting to see what kind of pieces you pick and choose and put into the story. And what about you, Chris? Absolutely a fan. Some of my favorite fandoms I've discovered through Fusion AUs, so... It's a whole new take on your very favorite characters, so. Uh, so let's define a fusion AU for somebody who's listening who's, you know, maybe newer to fan fiction or doesn't know them by that name. What are we talking about when we talk about a fusion AU? We'll go to you, Chris. A fusion AU is like a crossover, but you're only taking, you're only bringing elements um, into the new story. Uh, oftentimes it takes uh, characters that you're particularly partial to from your favorite fandom and then puts them in a new setting. They don't retain their backstories oftentimes. Um, they just, as if they always existed in this new universe, whatever it is you're fusing with. Right. And I mean, they're not, we said they're not a crossover. Right. 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 So, uh, Joan, uh, why don't we see if you can kind of fill us in on what is the difference then between a fusion and a straight crossover? A fusion, as opposed to a straight crossover, doesn't have characters from both fandoms, which can be really confusing when you're going through looking for crossovers and you find two fandoms tagged and you're trying to read through and characters from the second fandom don't show up. Mm -hmm. 
So a fusion AU, you have a base fandom. So I'm going to use Avengers since a lot mm-hmm. of people <laughs> are, are familiar with them. So you have mm-hmm. your Avengers cast and then the fusion AU would take aspects from Pacific Rim or Mad Max or Pokemon or something like that and mm-hmm. add them to the Marvel cast instead of having the Marvel cast meeting Mako Mori or the Marvel cast meeting Ash Ketchum mm-hmm. or something. You know, yeah. so the Marvel cast would be fighting in Jaegers or they'd have Pokemon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and fusions can kind of take parts of either canon and import the parts they like and jettison the ones that they don't, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, like an MCU fusion doesn't have to in any way even still be set in the MCU. The setting can be where that fusion element comes from entirely. And then we arrive on the tricky ground of what makes a true fusion as opposed to just a superhero AU. And honestly, I personally classify fusions under crossovers. I classify Uh two kinds of crossovers. There's the fusion crossover, which is Uh what we're talking about today. And then there's the quote-unquote portal crossover where characters... Are the are the main driving force of the story? So you know you mm-hmm. ha- you uh, Avengers meeting Mako Mori or things like that, and mm-hmm. that's the point of the portal crossover. Whereas the fusion crossover, yeah. you can take and mix and match and anything as long as you're taking mm-hmm. more than one fandom into the story with you. That's what I would call a fusion AU yeah. or a fusion crossover. One one is to watch how the characters will interact with each other, and one is to watch how the characters interact with a different universe. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Yeah, the same way that uh, it would be an AU, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can have crossovers that are not AUs, but you can't have fusions that are really not AUs right. to some degree. Yeah, by definition. Um, and, I mean, crossovers to me, like, the portal crossover sometimes happens, but I feel like it more often happens in a kind of a crack fix scenario. Most of the time when you see a crossover, it's going to be, you know, like a Marvel fic where Marvel characters are meeting who are in technically different areas of the Marvel universe, right? Like, that to me is the most common kind of a crossover is where the universe is kind of already fit together. I use the term portal just as a sort I- of throwback to the really basic kind of cracky like you mentioned Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be a literal portal you know people could build the fandoms together but the i just Mm -hmm. use that word as a as a distinction between the the Mm -hmm. fusion Mm -hmm. au the difference that i like to think of is like i used to love quantum leap And Quantum Leap was one that lent itself really well to crossovers, because Mm -hmm. essentially you have this main character in Quantum Leap, Dr. Sam Beckett, who in his show is leaping into Mm -hmm. different people's lives. So he's the only character, him and his friend Al, who stays consistent. So it was really easy to write a Quantum Leap crossover, because you can just have Dr. Sam Beckett leap into anybody, in any universe, in any time. And those are crossovers, Right. If, if you've got Sam Beckett leaping into somebody, it's about Sam Beckett. It's about Quantum Leap. It's about him interacting with the other characters. But if you're writing a Quantum Leap fusion, that would be if you have a character in that mm-hmm. one universe who's leaping within that yeah. kind of the same universe. Like you're taking the core concept of leaping, but you're kind of jettisoning everything else. You're giving mm-hmm. you're giving that to someone else. Like a lot of fusions that I see will take 
the cast of one fandom absolutely and then put it in the situation of another fandom yeah which which is basically what you just described with quantum leap yeah yeah i mean you can have different types of fusions though you can have setting fusions where you're picking up a cast and you're putting them into the that other setting you can also have like concept fusions so you could write, for example, a Hunger Games fusion that's maybe still set in the overall Marvel Universe, Contest of Champions style, yeah. but it's the core concept of the Hunger Games that's there, not necessarily the districts. Yeah, I would say I would say that your crossovers, um, your characters' backstories remain intact. Everything that happened until the beginning of the crossover actually happened. It can diverge from canon, but canon actually happened. Where in a fusion, your your it is an alternate universe. It's an alternate take on canon. Something is different and has been different from the beginning. Whether they're in a new universe or whether it's elements of that universe brought into their original universe. So fusions have a long fandom history. Um, according to fan lore, they go back really to around the turn of the 21st century, so around 2000s. But they actually didn't become very popularized until around 2005, and there was actually a SGA fandom push mm -hmm. where there was actually a challenge that was built around AUs and an entire SGA fusion community. Mm -hmm. So Stargate Atlantis fandom is kind of where that really took off, and that's a, where a lot of the... Um, types of universes that we commonly identify as fusion universes kind of now come yeah. from. And uh, there are actually currently, I looked today, uh, 18,000 plus fix on AO3 with the tag of alternate universe fusion. Mm -hmm. That obviously doesn't account for all of them because they're not all necessarily going to have been caught under that alternate universe fusion umbrella. Mm -hmm. Some of them might not be even tagged as AU and they just might have both the fandoms. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot. Like, that's not a small number, right? There's quite a lot of fusions being written out there. Most fandoms have the most common fusions at least once. Um, so let's talk about some of the most common fusion AUs that you actually do see in the world of fanfiction mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. appeal of those different fusion AUs and kind of how they came to pass and what they take and don't take. Um, and I wanted to start with a really big one that almost could warrant its own whole episode of the show that a lot of people don't realize is a fusion, which is Sentinel. Ah, uh, yep. yes. Yup. Oh, that's an old fandom. It's so old, I barely know about it. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so for those of you who are, who are kind of listening to this and you're saying to yourself, wait a second, whoa, 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 back up. I thought we were talking about huge fusions. How come you're not talking about Sentinel AUs? Because <laughs> uh, for some people, they really will not know that. Um, it is actually a total fusion mm -hmm. AU. It's a fusion AU with a TV series, uh, which is called The Sentinel. Mm-hmm which aired from 1996 to 1999, yep. so pretty old school, uh, 65 episodes, mm -hmm. uh, and as a Canuck, I'm happy to say it was Canadian produced, <laughs> and it aired on the now defunct UPN network, mm -hmm. that's how old it is, wow. um, and The Sentinel was just kind of this show about, like a, I'll read the Wikipedia plot, because I personally didn't watch it, but I had no lots of friends my age who were fans of it. Um, it's Jim Ellison is the main character. He's an army ranger, um, and he spent all this time in the Peruvian jungle, and his unit was killed, and he developed these hyper-acute senses mm -hmm. from surviving in the wild and then repressed them when he returned to civilization. And so when he returns to civilization, um, he kind of gets tagged by the government and by the kind of larger world as uh, like an ancient tribal thing called a sentinel right so this is where the part where if you read sentinel AUs, you're like oh okay now i get it kind of except that 
the biggest difference is that in actual in in the Sentinel. Um, uh, so you'll see that tag on a Sentinel AU that Sentinel and guides are known because it's all secret in the actual Sentinel TV show. It's a super uh, unstudied phenomenon. The guy who winds up as his guide, as his teacher or whatever, is the only dude studying this phenomenon. So nobody knows about it. Nobody knows about He's the only guy, as far as he knows, for a long, long time who has these powers. Um, and so all of the things that become a lot of the things that become part, like you say, since nobody knows that this is off of a TV show, those are all things the fans bring to it. Yeah, so it's kind of become its own thing, like with ABO, mm-hmm. where because most of the people who are coming to this AU don't realize it's a fusion at all, mm-hmm. they don't assume that there's any canon to build off of. Yeah. So they'll just make up whatever they want on top of that lore of this mm-hmm. notion that you have a sentinel, which is a person who has these hyperacute senses, who kind of drifts in and out of awareness, and they need somebody to ground them. Mm-hmm. And then this other person who is destined to be their guide. Yeah. Who destined to be the person to ground them. Yeah. And, and really what I think fandom has done has taken it and turned it into something very similar to a soul mark or soulmate AU. Uh-huh. Absolutely. In some respects. Unsurprising, it's, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it becomes a romance thing where you're destined to meet your guide. And then it, it also has the ABO element of separate classes of society. Uh-huh. So then people started to draw on this idea that, well, guides are treated one way and sentinels might be treated another way. Mm-hmm. So some fics actually tap into that, too. Mm-hmm. Which, again... In the original show, they're not known, so that's yeah. not a thing. Nope, but not when at you all. create this whole world now where everybody is a sentinel or guide and it's this whole class of society, it becomes a whole other thing. I didn't realize personally, like when I started reading fan fiction again, that the sentinel was actually coming from the show, even though I knew it was a show, um, until I suddenly started reading a couple of the fics that actually had the characters Jim Ellison and Blair Sandberg. And I was like, where are they getting these characters from? And I had to kind of clue in and be like, oh, it's actually its own, it's a canon. Okay. Honestly, my first Sentinel fic was actually a, cro- a crossover proper with Sentinel. So, oh, <laughs> yes. It, <yeah. laughs> so I, I was reading about Ellison and Blair. So instead of, you know, a, about a guide and a, a yeah. Sentinel, but that's not a fusion, but that's how I know about Sentinel. That's how I. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm honestly unsurprised how it has evolved through fandom because, you know, it's an early fandom and mm-hmm. so people uh wouldn't have had access to the videos mm-hmm. and the episodes as we do now. But it's a really appealing kind of dynamic, you know, especially when you're shipping two white guys. <laughs> you know? Um yeah. and then you and then you end up and it mutates and permeates and it's become the sort of AU not crossover mm-hmm. sort of feeling that we get mm-hmm. today. And I think in a couple of years, we'll look back and have people say, wait, Pacific Rim was a movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, probably. It's possible. It's possible. Probably not because Pacific Rim was really huge and we're getting a second movie. But, like, I can definitely see people being into Pacific Rim fusions as opposed to the Pacific Rim fandom itself. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's a similar thing to the to the Sentinel and Guide with yeah. with the drift compatibility that they have in the Pacific Rim canon. I will say this. You you say that, and, and here's a fun fact about me. I have a deep and abiding love of Pacific Rim AUs, and I have never seen Pacific Rim. <laughs> Interesting. So for me... For me, that's I'm gonna see it mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I really want to see it. I just just sitting mm-hmm. on my Netflix queue. You right? definitely mm-hmm. should. <laughs> um, but I feel like I know about the concept. 
And the thing uh-huh. is, having read all of these Pacrim AUs, I don't know anything about the characters. Like, I only mm-hmm. have a vague passing knowledge from fandom of the characters. So uh-huh. that it's not going to spoil any of the character stories for me because yeah. they're literally not present. That's mm-hmm. the difference of a fusion, right? Yep. What I know about Pacrim from fusion AUs is solely that you have mm-hmm. this universe where there are giant mechas and they are called Jaegers and you have mm-hmm. giant kaiju monsters. <laughs> and somehow the kaiju monsters have risen up from the ocean. And in order to fight them for, for some reason, which I'm sure they can't explain you need two people who are specifically drift compatible who can telepathically read each other's minds to operate these giant mechas yeah. which is very cool as yeah. a concept basically basically you know you get down far enough with, with Pacific Rim and the, and the story is giant monsters fighting giant robots you know Ooh, wait. It's it's a fun movie. And it's mm-hmm. kind of it makes for really good post-apocalyptic fic. Like a mm-hmm. lot of the AUs that I've read are it's a really good opportunity to put the characters in a kind of a post-apocalypse everything is doom and gloom. Um we are all different now. Like they were mm-hmm. living the canon life before this happened and now mm-hmm. they're not. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting in that respect. That's really interesting that you say that people do post-apocalyptic Pacific Rim AUs because, you know, the drive of the movie is, uh, you know, we've, we've all heard Sacker Pentecost's famous line of canceling the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, you know, but personally, I, you know, after Pacific Rim came out, I saw so much art for Jaeger teams. Oh, and totally. So much, you know, they were good art for all these yeah. really cool canon ideas about who's drift compatible with who. I mm. never, um, I never actually read uh, the the Pacific Rim AU specifically, mm-hmm. I I just never got around to it. But I I loved reading the head canons and I loved re- I loved looking mm-hmm. at the art. It was it's a really good concept and I think that mm-hmm. drift compatibility is a really good fandom concept to talk about um, oh, yeah. character interaction and, and stuff. Well, that's the neat thing about a lot of these is that what what I think people take away primarily is a way to head canon the characters in a fun way. Because with Sentinel, the fun part is thinking about, okay, would this character be a guide or would this character be a Sentinel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, my friend and I, we have several AUs based on um, just taking aspects from one fandom and putting them into this other fandom. Like, um, I know I was on the I was on the Homestuck episode and we talked mm-hmm. about the Homestuck specific shipping, and so you get. Uh, you see some AUs in, in Homestuck, some fusions in Homestuck where it's just human characters have quadrants now. And like that's the only aspect of Homestuck that they bring over because the, the quadrant system is really interesting. And, you know, that's a kind of fusion. And the thing is, I think that 99% of the joy of a Harry Potter fusion AU for a lot of people is thinking about which houses they get sorted into. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the primary thing that usually makes it a Harry Potter AU besides all of the magic. And, you know, the universe of J.K. Rowling is you sit down and you think, okay, so this character's going to be a Slytherin. And Mm -hmm. and I've seen people have crazy debates about that. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's just fun to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, Primary versus secondary houses and, you know. Slitherpuff. Ravendor. <laughs> yep. Well, the other one that's actually really interesting for that is there's two that I would classify together as uh, they kind of become 
giving the characters magical companions AUs, which oh, is yeah. you have your you have your demon AUs, which is uh, his dark materials, mm-hmm. and that's another one that when you look at it on Ao3 now, it's not tagged a alternate universe his dark materials. It's just tagged yeah. alternate universe demons because a lot yeah. of people don't even realize that that's from his dark materials. Yeah. And the other one is um, a Pokemon AU. Yeah. Like, generally, the fun of those is that you're coming up with these net new original character companions for the person. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking in the context of the characters, well, gee, if daemons represent your kind of internal soul, what kind of a creature would this character have as a daemon? Or, mm-hmm. oh, what kind of Pokemon would this person have collected? And what would they name them? And how much fun would that be? You know, I think that I th- that seems to be a recurring theme with with these kind of fusions is how how would a new uh, system classify a character and how how would this fit into this character's personality? How would they change or mm-hmm. not change? And how how do we use this system to define this character and how would that work? Well, that's the whole thing is I think for a lot of people, it's it's a good way to talk about that definition of character, because when you're writing fan fiction and it becomes transformative, right? Mm-hmm. Um I think that that's the key thing for a lot of people is how do you keep a character from going out of character and what's your specific headcanon and how is it different than other people's headcanons and so a mm-hmm. lot of these fusion AUs that have taken off versus and we'll talk later about ones that kind of haven't it really comes down to does this particular universe give you a fun new way to contextualize and define the characters you love in something else it also kind of explains why you see a lot of Harry Potter AUs that have like three chapters and then die off. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> what they really wanted to do there was write, like, meta. But they felt like, oh, I need to, it has to be a, a fic or no one's going to read it. Uh-huh. But I really only wanted to write meta on that. Yeah. You know what, though? Just write, like, a drabble about them sitting yeah. under the sorting hat. Like, totally. that's all you need to do, right? It's just literally yeah. the sorting hat scene, but different characters, mm-hmm. you know, and them talking to the hat. I think yeah. that's yep. charming. Um yep. What was interesting to me, actually, was when I was researching this, is that Sentinel AUs seem like they're really, or a lot of them, because there's there's probably mm-hmm. a couple of good ones in every fandom. Uh, yeah. There's only 582 that I found tagged on AO3, uh-huh. which is about the same number as Pacific Rim AUs, which, considering uh-huh. Sentinel's been around a lot longer, was surprising to me. There was mm-hmm. 563 Pacific Rim AUs, but there was 993 fix tagged as alternate universe daemons. Yeah. And I really don't think very many people at all have actually read the Philip Pullman books who are, who are writing those AUs. Like, I feel like to the relative popularity, way mm-hmm. more fans have actually seen Pacific Rim <laughs> oh, yeah. than have read his Dark Materials. Um, totally. and so mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because it's not necessarily the most popular universes that are the ones that take off. It's the ones that give people that specific thing that they want to play with mm-hmm. or that they can read in a fusion, not know it's a fusion and go, oh, my God, that's a cool concept. I don't Absolutely. need to go read the books at mm-hmm. all to understand the fundamentals of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think Fair a lot enough. of people came away from Philip Pullman's series and just thought the best part of that was having an animal to follow you around. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah all it, of the weighty, like, atheism stuff and all yeah. of the, like, multiverse stuff. You're, you're just like, I just want a cute animal. Can I just have a daemon with me? No, oh, absolutely. His his universe is so complex and so heavy, and he really, I feel, took his characters um, 
uh, it's one of those things where where uh, you don't need fiction to follow those characters to give you what you wanted from those characters. You already explored the duration of those characters, so the universe doesn't need exploring. The characters don't need exploring. But oh my goodness, isn't an animal a soul animal or whatever? Isn't that an excellent trope? So. Yeah, some of these, it's just so fun to dive into that concept. Um, when Sense8 came out, I actually watched Sense8 because I loved Sense8 AU so much. Because I read a few of them and I was like, this is a very cool concept. Mm -hmm. This is a great concept. Eight people telepathically linked. I mean, you could basically take them from any fandom. You mm -hmm. could do a multi-epic crossover of eight characters from eight different fandoms and put them in a Sense8 AU. Or you could pick eight characters within the same universe and again, there's a sense of fun to that, of like, which eight characters do I pick? And then what do they all bring to the sense eight that they're mm -hmm. in together? And, and you know, ooh, I can write an OT8. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I think that, that the, at the same token, I didn't see a lot of sense eight fic as much as I saw interest in the AUs. And Chris, you and I were talking earlier about that being because sense eight is already, yeah. um, yep. it's already so transformative in and of itself that fandom doesn't need to kind of correct it in yeah. the same way. Yeah. So, like, if you know that the writers are going to give you a really good gay orgy, why do you have to write the fic? You kind of don't. You're like, ah, the gay orgy's already written. Um, <laughs> but the... Right? Not only is it written, it's filmed. Right. But the concept, I think, is so compelling. Yeah. And was so nebulous and kind of vague that it doesn't have a lot of clear rules mm -hmm. in the show. So you could take that concept, that's one I think that in, you know, five or ten years, maybe nobody will remember Sense8 was a show, but we'll all, we could all reasonably be reading a ton of Sense8 fic. Totally. Um, I wish, actually. There's only 41 on AO3 that I saw, because Sense8 kind of came and then left. Very <laughs> sudden. It was a it's, very sudden thing. Yeah. It's the Netflix binge phenomenon. Well, and I think what you're talking about, about it disappearing, I, I think there's a good chance, too, based on accessibility. You had to have Netflix to watch Sensate. So it was popular for a limited amount of time, and you had to have Netflix, which is a little bit more of an investment for some people. Mm -hmm. um, I wound up going to a friend's to watch Sensate, whereas Pacific Rim was in theaters and then is a DVD, and if you wanted to acquire it, there are ways to do that without any monetary output at all. Yes. Whereas, like, with the Sentinel, when I finally realized that that was an actual thing and wanted to see what it was all, what all the hype was about and why everybody loved it so much, because surely they did if they were writing all these AUs, I couldn't find it. I eventually found one place that I could download, like, two-thirds of the pilot in poor condition, but I flat out had to order the DVDs, and I think mine even came from Canada, because there were, like, three copies on Amazon.com. Like, it was so hard to access the source material. And I feel like Sensate has more of a chance of going that direction than, like, Pacific Rim. Mm, so. Yeah. So there's a few other ones I wanted to mention because they're kind of fun. Um, I think that we're starting to see more and more and more Hunger Games AUs. I feel like that's one that kind of, like, it was never as big as the movies were, but, like, I'm mm -hmm. starting to see more and more and more. It's starting to become a thing now that in a lot of fandoms people are requesting. Yeah. I could definitely see why that would be popular. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. There's so much there's so much there for hurt comfort, and then, you know, you've got the epic supposed love scene in the first thing you know it's like mm -hmm. our love is so strong it scares the capital 
you know, and then you get into conversations too when you're talking about a Hunger Games AU of like, well, which district would they all be from, and uh-huh. which characters might be the mentor instead of being in the games, mm-hmm. yeah. and okay, so which villains do we take and put in the games with them, and what level mm-hmm. of competition are they all? Like, what kind mm-hmm. of a competitor? Again, it's defining the character, right? Yeah, what's mm-hmm. what's the political power in this universe? Which faction of people from the original canon are in power here? You know? Yeah, and also like, what kind of a competitor would they be? Would they be a really mm-hmm. smart competitor what scenario could you see them winning in or not who do they ally with you know mm-hmm. it's a good opportunity to kind of have that neat character exploration of, of how they would get through it absolutely mm-hmm. um and another one that i'm surprised doesn't come up more um there's a couple that i'm actually genuinely surprised don't you don't see more of supernatural au's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i see like from time to time mm-hmm. but more often than not you're just going to get a straight supernatural crossover yeah. yeah as opposed to a fusion where you bring in hunters and werewolves mm-hmm. and gods and angels into another universe so I have a theory. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Supernatural fusions, or or whatever. The reason why you get more uh, crossovers than fusions is the same reason that you would do that with um, your cop detective shows and all the rest of it. It uh, assumes a world where it's basically what we know now, and it's only certain people who are in on the secret. So it's really easy to cross over with something else. You don't have to change the foundations of the world because nobody knows about it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's super easy to do crossovers rather than rather than fusion. So when you do see fu- fusions, it's more like um, they're describing some event in their story, but they're using terms that they've lifted from supernatural. They talk about demons in the same way. They talk about exorcisms in the same way, or they talk about rock salt shotguns. But they're elements that they've lifted um, just as yeah. like a, a terminology. Usually it would be like, oh, well, this is an AU where Howard Stark was secretly a hunter. Yeah. Or something. Like, that's usually the element you're bringing in is the idea that there are hunters. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And you don't see as Mm -hmm. many Star Trek fusions. You do see a lot of spaceship AUs, but not specifically Star Trek fusions. Mm -hmm. And, like, you see a fair amount of Star Wars fusions, Uh but not as many as you would assume that you would after The Mm -hmm. Force Awakens, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of that is just... The can there's a weight to those canons, um, Star Trek, Star Wars, and mm. even Supernatural that are just it's hard to separate, you know, the elements that you want from all that canon that's that's there. Mm-hmm. They might be a little bit daunting too, mm-hmm, because yeah. those are ones like with the Pacrame U. I've never even seen the movie, and I feel like I could reasonably try to write one, and Wikipedia would probably be a help, mm-hmm, and that's uh-huh. it. But like, if you're going to write a Star Wars or a Star Trek AU, I feel like. It, similarly, even to a Harry Potter AU mm-hmm. um, or a Supernatural AU, you, you might write the AU and then have 20 people be like, but you got this detail about this species Oh, yeah. Wrong. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Totally. Or, or you said that they have a warp drive, but this is Star mm-hmm. Wars. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to know both fandoms mm-hmm. intimately. So, so, and so you asked uh, before we started, you were asking about Doctor Who. And I wouldn't wonder if that's one of the problems with writing Doctor Who fusions is that you have to assume, depending on how much you're incorporating, you need to, you need to know a lot about Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I personally have watched one season and that was enough. And I don't feel I have enough grounding to write anything in that universe. So a fusion, you know, that's tricky. Oh, I would agree. I would add that to mm-hmm. the, really old space fandoms that are scary that are, <laughs> that, that are scary if you've not watched the star treks yeah, yeah like uh-huh. those three are older than 
like most people who are writing thick right now, mm-hmm. you know, not even not even combined age, like individually. Mm-hmm. Those those are really old fandoms and are almost notorious for the amount of mm-hmm. nitpicky details that the fans can know about. Mm-hmm. So when you go to Absolutely. to, you know, write just a fusion just a fusion. When you you know to lift <laughs> when you go to lift elements from those fandoms, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to know which are crucially linked to which bits and uh-huh. which you can lift easily. Yeah, and which ones people will get offended that you left out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen more Doctor Who uh, crossovers partially because I was in that fandom where mm-hmm. you know where you see X is a Time Lord, you know, was was a theory. And I think part of the reason you see more of those having, you know, with random characters being Time Lords is because that was almost a meme a while back, (laughs) you know? That would be a Doctor Who fusion. It wouldn't have to include the Doctor, but it could just be based on the premise that such and such character either finds out that they are a Time Lord and goes to Gallifrey, or they have secretly been a Time Lord the whole time. Okay, but you said it right there. You said goes to Gallifrey. I could never write a fusion because I have no idea what is encapsulated in going to Gallifrey. I don't know where that's located or what it looked like. or you know, The canon doesn't even really know. You know, so they couldn't even go to Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. And you don't see as many, I, I wonder why you don't see as many Marvel fusions, because it could easily just be, you know, you're in X fandom, and such and such character, the Avengers exist suddenly in their fandom, and they find out that they are a mutant or an inhuman. Yeah, And because- then they have powers. That's that's just a superhero AU, only you've also got Tony Stark in the background. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Marvel, that's an actually really interesting one that I, I definitely wanted to mention in this episode. Uh, both me- Marvel and DC are really interesting examples of canon fusions. Because, <laughs> like, if you look at the history of comic books, all these different superheroes that we know legitimately started on their own individual worlds. They didn't, you know, they didn't coexist like they do now. They all sort of merged together slowly as as mm-hmm. history went on. So, you know, technically Tony Stark's living in a fusion AU. <laughs> kind of. You know. Kind of, yeah. The whole history of comics. I mean, comics are I'll get some shit from this from people I know, but sometimes I like to joke that comic books are basically fan fiction with the best fan art you'll ever see. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I mean, that's obviously kind of reductive. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, comics are one of the only mediums where the characters get passed down from creator mm-hmm. to creator to creator yeah. to creator. And you're really seeing headcanons of headcanons of headcanons. Mm-hmm. And AUs have a long history in the comics, period. Oh, absolutely. Like, they have, absolutely. they have, I know DC has this Elsewhere series that's literally just a big AU series. And yeah. Marvel used to do a series called What If, and it was literally just What If rewritings. Yeah. So, like, what if X character didn't die? And if you read Marvel right now, my favorite comic is Spider-Gwen, and Spider-Gwen is a Spider-Man AU. Mm-hmm. Straight up, it's in a separate universe from the rest of Marvel, and in this universe, <laughs> the exists. clever thing about oh. it is it is an AU in which Gwen Stacy, in fact, did not die, Peter mm-hmm. Parker died, and Gwen Sp- Stacy became Spider-Woman. Nice. And in this AU, Punisher is a cop, his family lived. Daredevil is the big evil kingpin. Uh-huh. Um, there's a the Captain America was born a black woman. Um, Tony Stark owns a coffee chain called Starkbucks. <laughs> like, it, it's 
really, really clever because it basically mm-hmm. takes everything you think you know and it just kind of slightly upends it in a fun way. But mm-hmm. comics have a long history of that, and you're right. Like, comics are essentially one giant fusion universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, it's an, and it's a definite example of both the strengths and the weaknesses of fusion, especially if you're bringing the characters in, because especially when you're looking at the Marvel universe, technically all the Avengers are in the same world, so. Why did Tony Stark have to rescue the president by himself? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And where the heck is Thor and everything? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, because those are not necessarily compatible universes. One thing that was I was curious about with fusions, too, is I was looking up some of the different fusion AUs that exist on AO3 prior to this, and certain ones, I was like, can you call that a fusion, though? Like, there was mm. a, a listing for Friends fusions, and I was like, uh, you're writing a coffee shop AU. <laughs> like, like I'm just curious what constitutes a fusion versus you're just are you just rewriting Friends episodes? That does sound that's like not really a fusion either. Sounds like what Chris was talking about earlier with the superhero AUs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You have to have in order for it to be a fusion, there have to be enough things that are particular to whatever universe you're borrowing from and unfortunately coffee shops are pretty much ubiquitous so unless you're actually calling your coffee shop central perk and there's a blonde dude who is super salty who serves everybody or you assign some of your characters oh one's a museum guy and one guy we don't know what he does so unless you bring in enough distinct elements from the canon you're borrowing from than it is. It's just a coffee shop AU. And and especially when there are no like um extra unique tropes like demons or whatever, then it's a fine line between just rewriting, like you say, rewriting friends episodes, just doing a rewrite of a universe versus a true fusion. Well the other thing is some things are just so generally broad. So like yeah. could could a fairy tale AU really count as a fusion? Mm-hmm. Because fairy tale is a very, very, very broad set of things in the same way that calling something a magical AU or a spaceship AU is. Yeah. Versus if you are specifically bringing in elements from once upon a time, mm-hmm. that's a fusion. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you have all of the characters realize that they are actually each fairy tale characters in a way similar to Once Upon a Time, mm-hmm. where they have these double lives, mm-hmm. then that's technically sure that's a Once Upon a Time fusion. But like just mm-hmm. having them all be in a fairy tale setting is yeah. somewhat more generic. Yeah, fairy tales yeah. are basically tropes. I mean, you could call it a crossover if you had someone legitimately meet Snow White or something. But um, to actually say it's a fusion, I think it'd be really hard to pull, specifically pull off. So we've talked a little bit about what fusions are or aren't and some of the most fun ones. Um, let's talk about what makes a really successful, great fusion versus a fusion that you read and you're kind of like, okay. <laughs> um, so what makes them really, really work? What are the common traits of the best fusions that you guys have ever read or written? Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. I would say uh, distinct elements from the canon that you're fusing with that mark it as very different from the fusion you're coming from. 
and especially when you don't need uh, a grounding in what you're fusing with. So, like, um, you can do three sentences to explain what a demon is, and that's all you need, and then you've got a ready-to-go His Dark Materials fusion fic. I didn't realize it at the time, but I read a, a Halo Teen Wolf fusion fic the other day, and I'm going through this, going, "Oh wow, this is such an interesting fic! Oh, that's that's a cool take on androids! Oh, this is really, you know." And I was invested in the characters, and and it was in the comment section. I went, "Oh, oh, that was the plot of Halo, wasn't it? Oh, oh, I I don't know what Halo is, you know, but I didn't need any more explanation than what they gave me." And and what they gave me was so distinct and so clearly an alternate universe that was compelling. You know, you watch, you read it for the characters and you didn't need the extra help from knowing the other canon. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, right? Because like I said, I read the Packer Mayus, I don't know anything. Yeah. And ideally in a good one, I don't need to know anything. Right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joan, what about you? What makes them really work for you? With Fusioneos, definitely it's about you have to make them compatible with each other because sometimes mm-hmm. you see you see two fandoms and you're like, how on earth would they fit together? And if you come out of that thinking, yeah, how would they, how would they fit together? Then that that's not successful. Mm -hmm. But if you make the mesh, then that's Mm -hmm. definitely successful. Another thing is handling of a character's backstory, because sometimes if if you've got a fusion where the, the two fandoms are completely incompatible with each other, like say you're taking, um, something like pre-industrialized and putting them on a spaceship, you know, like a Star Trek fusion or something. Um, You're going to have to take any backstory those characters had and then make it work Uh with the, with this, you know, with the spaceship. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of fusions where they have done that and they've done that wonderfully and they've made certain elements of a character's backstory fit very, you know, fit absolutely perfectly with the events in the other canon you know yeah totally yeah that totally would have happened that's definitely how you know this Uh that's definitely how you got to this point you've definitely managed to put this character in a spaceship and they're Uh still the same character even though you know concept a from a universe doesn't exist in in b universe Uh but it's still it's still character a you know and so when that happens then that's a very good fusion for me that's kind of the same principle of what makes a good AU, right? Is ultimately what you want to do is peel away certain layers of the character, but make sure that ultimately that character feels intact. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I think that something about that too is that you have to be very careful, like, which fusion universe you pick. Because mm-hmm. some universes may just not ever lend themselves to a particular type of a fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and some might. And how you mesh them, like, there has to be a reason that you're writing that fusion. There has to be a particular thing about that character, I think, that made you get up and scream and go, oh my god, they should go into this situation. So how do you approach the world building in a fusion AU, though? Really, you said you could get away with just three lines, if you really wanted to, of now there are daemons. So what's the difference between kind of successful world building and poor world building when you're looking at specifically a fusion? I think it depends on knowing your limits within this fusion because you have to know how much you can bite off when you're doing a fusion, how much of, of, you know, 
fandom B, do you want to merge with fandom A? Because, you know, if, if we're doing a, to come back to a standard one, a His Dark Materials fusion, do you want just demons or do you want to bring in their concept of witches? Do you want to bring in the, uh, absolutely, the, uh, metalworking polar bears, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a really big, big thing because, yeah if you bring in too much or if you bring in too little, it's going to fall apart because you either have too much to support and not enough space or time mm-hmm. or energy to explain all these changes in the AU mm-hmm. in a, in a good way, or either there's not enough to support the changes that you've brought. But you can, you can create short fusions. Mm-hmm. I've read oh, yeah. unbelievable fusion rabbles. So it's possible. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are people who know their limits, you know, who can, mm-hmm. who can work within the limits of, of the things that they want to do. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, and sometimes that leaves you wanting the long fic. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I think it also depends on whether you're assuming that your audience uh, is familiar with whatever you're borrowing from as well. You know, you can't, you can't, bring in too many elements on a sentinel au because most people have never seen the sentinel but on a supernatural au or on i don't know pacific rim you know pacific rim uh you can bring in a lot more and either they will be familiar with it or if there are enough of these au's going around they will become familiar with the other elements and then you don't have to spend that time building it up uh, and so finding, I think what you're talking about, knowing your limits, I think it's, it's finding that sweet spot in the balance there and knowing your audience. All right. Well, well all that being said, right, uh, about what makes them successful and not successful. And let's look at some actual good examples of successful ones and let's do some fic recs. Joan, we'll start with you. What did you bring for us for a fic rec today? This one is one that was written in 2010, so it's now getting to be kind of old. <laughs> and it's you can tell it's old because it's on fanfiction.net, but um, <laughs> uh, it's a Firefly and a Full Metal Alchemist crossover where um, the characters from Full Metal Alchemist are now in the Firefly universe. And Roy and, you know, Roy Mustang and his uh, little group there are the the people who are flying mm-hmm. Serenity, the Firefly class spaceship. And then, you know, obviously they're going to mm-hmm. stumble upon Ed and Al. And I, I bet you can guess who they are if you're familiar with Firefly at all. Um, and I think <laughs> it does a good job of if you're familiar with either of the canons i think it does a good job of balancing your knowledge and what you need to know or what you don't need to know in this Mm -hmm. um and it is complete (laughs) excellent all right so that would be uh full metal firefly serenity by bookworm 389 how many words does that clock in at uh, thirty-three thousand. So fairly lengthy. Okay. I like I like long thick. So okay. <laughs> excellent. All right. Uh, so Chris, what did you bring for us? Um, Ultraviolet by Ellie Satak. It's a Teen Wolf Mass Effect fusion oh. um, that I found notable because in the comment section, it was another one that had that effect on people where they're like, "Oh wait, this was a fusion. Wait, what was it fused with?" It takes characters from the Teen Wolf universe, specifically Styles and Derek, because I'm a Steric shipper, um, and puts them in the science or in the space AU of Mass Effect. Um, and so it's effective. 
it does a really good job of balancing um, the explaining that needs to happen to get you invested in Mass Effect um, and the excitement of the actual plot. It maintains the characters from the Teen Wolf universe and just enough elements of their backstory that if you're a Teen Wolf fan, you're reading it going, oh, oh, right, that's where the sheriff is. Oh, right, that's because, of course, Claudia. And so you can put, you know, make those little connections. I think it's also cool because it does some really interesting and kind of transformative things to the Mass Effect universe, combining races and, and, and things like that, which you would look for in a piece of Mass Effect fan fiction. But it just, you know, you don't need the Mass Effect background. You just uh, enjoy it. So I actually I brought one for this episode. And interestingly enough, it is not a Marvel fic. <laughs> My recs, hey. my recs always lately tend to be basically Daredevil or Marvel, and because that's what I read. But I mm-hmm. actually have a really amazing Yuletide fic I read at Christmas that blew my mind, and it is a Hamilton Pacific Rim fusion. Hey. Oh, yes. Um, so it is only twelve hundred words. So it's the perfect example of like a drabble that gets in and out and is almost just nice poetry. It does its job really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. It assumes you have a kind of a fundamental understanding of a Pacrim fusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is about Angelica Schuyler and Eliza Schuyler being drift compatible together and going to fight in the war. And it has a little bit of a background, um, Alexander and Eliza. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very sad. Um, but it's oh, it's just mm-hmm. kind of vague enough to be beautiful, but still uh, detailed enough and b- building the world enough to be impressive. Um, so if you want a nice short read, uh, it's it's really good. It is called Drift by Plinus. So so that what you what you mentioned about um, Angelica and Eliza being drift compatible, that's something that I appreciate about um, Pac Rim as opposed to the Sentinel. The Sentinel is one of those things where the trope almost always tends towards the romantic. So if you're coming up with a character to be a sentinel and a guide, you're going to pick whoever it is that you ship. But with Pacrim, um, they don't have to be. It can be romantic, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. So any any characters can be drift compatible, and you can bring whatever else to that relationship you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I, I second that. I second that opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I'm, and again, being somebody who's sometimes is really just looking for good gen, maybe that's why I like the pack room I use a lot more, mm-hmm. is because they don't necessarily yeah. tend to always be romantic. Or they can be adversarial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love ones where they'll take two people who are villainous towards one another uh-huh. um, or who have that opposite relationship, and they're not necessarily shipping them, but they're saying, okay, but maybe there's things about them that they have in common. Right, they hate each yeah. other, but they fight so good. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's it's it's, totally. its own kind of romance to be mm-hmm. drift compatible. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a romantic or a sexual thing, and I think that it's a really good addition to the fandom because there are people who don't want to read about, mm-hmm. you know, the romantic or sexual things. Me being one of them, so you know, the whole <laughs> drift compatible phenomenon, I appreciate yeah. for being that flexible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, um, so I will ask you guys to leave us with any final thoughts. I'm also going to actually ask the two of you to pose a question for the listeners to give us a little conversation starter on our dream with. 
that you would like to have them answer about Fusion AUs or that you think would be interesting to talk about. So, Chris, we'll start with you. I think that Fusion AUs are fascinating, and finding the line between a crossover, a fusion, and a rewrite is um, very tricky, uh, but can be very rewarding. And the question I would ask would be, do you, do people read fusions? How often do they read fusions um, with uh, things they're unfamiliar with, um, where, where they know one fandom but not the other? Is that a deterrent to starting a fusion or um, is it potentially a pro? I think that's actually really great because I've discovered a lot of fandoms through fusions. And I feel like mm-hmm. people have some good stories of, of coming to fandoms through fusions. Totally. And then there's the other side. I have never read a Hunger Games fusion, nor will I, because I don't like the Hunger Games. And that's possible, too. You know, and I'm never going to get into that fandom just because, and it won't matter, it won't matter what it's crossed with. I'm just not gonna, you know, so. Mm-hmm. All right. And Joan, some final thoughts and then your question. Um, I think my final thoughts on fusions are, they're really, they are fascinating things. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. to see how people fit different fandoms together in ways that you wouldn't see coming, mm-hmm. you know, because you're not them. It's it's just a different way to move canon around to make things transformative, as we like to say. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that they are definitely a plus to being, you know, within within fandom, because you can see things that you'd never that you never would have outside of fandom. You know, you want to mm-hmm. see. You want to see Sherlock Holmes and Watson punch giant monsters in the face from a robot? Go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the question that I would pose to to our listeners would be, what kind of things do you look for in a fusion? Um, are you looking for specific scenarios or what do you what do you like to see in fusions and why do you read them? Um, I think that'll be a really interesting one, too. So should be some good conversation on the dream with. So you can find those questions there. Mm-hmm. We can continue the conversation from this week as well as you can talk mm-hmm. about the episode in general if you'd like. Uh, so thank you so much, guys. That was really fun. So that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Chris and Joan for joining me. As always, if you heard us talking and you thought, how can I contribute to the show? Please check out our Tumblr for more information on that at otpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also find great fanfiction-related content there. As well, uh, as promised, I do have some podcast news, and that is that we are hoping to open ourselves up to potential sponsors and people who would like to spread their fanish love and creations to people like you listening who might want to hear about it. Uh, Whether you are a fan creator with an Etsy shop or a Tumblr artist who would like to advertise yourself or a convention or a self-published author, you can email the otpodcast at gmail.com with the subject line sponsorship for more details. And as a listener, just don't be surprised as well in the coming weeks if you do hear uh, some sponsorships that we've already gotten um, and that is something we're very excited about. It's going to allow us to do more different kinds of things with the show. We are also more than willing to spread the word about nonprofit enterprises or fan clubs as well. Please contact us and we will do whatever we can to help you out. Uh, fandom tends to congregate more online these days, but I really do love hearing about charitable enterprises fans have put together, nonprofit conventions, fan meetup groups of all kinds, and so I'm very happy to talk about them as well. Uh, I was asked before we went on the break if I could help let anyone in the Dallas or Fort Worth area in Texas know about a fanish brunch that happens there one Saturday every month. 
No matter what your fandom is, you'll be welcome. Uh, they play Slash the Game and Cards Against Humanity. It's a great opportunity for you to meet fellow fans live and in person in that area and make some new friends. You can find out more information about that at dfwfanbrunch.tumblr.com or they are also on Dreamwith with that username or on Twitter as at dfwfanbrunch. Uh, no feedback to read this week since we've been away for a little while, but we are excited to see what kind of feedback we get on this episode. Aside from the Tumblr and the Dreamwidth where you can join us, you can also find us on AO3 as the underscore OTP. All of our fic recs are there, um, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, or Stitcher, uh, and Google Play. As always, thanks to Peter Tchaikovsky for our theme song and logo. And finally, a reminder that your kink is not my kink, and that's okay. <laughs>